Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Mindy McGrath and Ryan Hemmel to talk about what's trending now. Let's start with the latest on the COVID-19 vaccines. Well, Jen, there is a lot of activity um, occurring right now in the vaccine space. So what we're seeing is Pfizer announced recently that they're launching a clinical trial in pregnant women, which has been a concern for a while. So that's nice to see that they're actually launching a trial around that. Um, Also, relative to the Pfizer vaccine, Lancet published a study that actually single dose effectiveness in preventing about 85% of symptomatic cases is something that is real with the, the Pfizer vaccine. So there has been a lot of conversation around whether Pfizer actually, the vaccine actually needed to be double dosed or whether you could get away with a higher level of efficacy and still get a, you know be able to not have that second dose. So this is the first publication we've seen to that, that effect. Um, I think the other interesting thing about Pfizer has been the announcement that was made recently that this this vaccine that is supposed to be stored in deeply um, cold temperatures can now be stored in more normal freezers, which opens up a whole lot of possibility then in terms of where the vaccine is able to go and how the vaccine might be used to meet more people in the community. Um, You know, in in light of Pfizer's news, J&J also had some really exciting news they sent their phase three package to the World Health Organization um, for emergency use um, listing. They also have submitted their um, filing to the FDA and an advisory committee is meeting shortly to review the data. Um, so the interesting thing about J&J's vaccine that we've talked about before is it is one dose. And while the effectiveness rate is lower for moderate disease, It is very significantly high when it comes to severe disease and hospitalization. So um, I think the thing that's concerning about J&J is that coming out of the gate upon approval, that they really won't have millions and millions and millions of doses. It's going to take a little bit of time for them to ramp up. But the nice thing is it's one dose. It's stored at room temperatures or refrigerated temperatures. And will most likely will find its way out into the pharmacy space. And I think the other thing that we're seeing too is variants. We've talked about some of the variants that have made their way across the pond, both the UK variant and the South African variant. And so what that has has done is it has propelled some more studies on possibly having some boosters to address those variants. AZ kind of came out of the gates a little rough and had a difficult time with their vaccine. it, It was actually taken out of standard of care in South Africa. Um, and there is a chance, right, that the FDA could actually reject AZ's COVID-19 vaccine based on the efficacy and on some of the manufacturing shortfalls that have come up. So lots of movement in vaccines, I think all trending towards positive things. Um, but it's amazing how like week to week, how much news kind of makes its way out around what is going on relative to vaccine activity. I completely agree that, you know, I feel like every time we try to escape the conversation around COVID and vaccination, we just can't because there's so much news coming at us a mile a minute. Just interesting. I read an article just at a macro level, taking this up even a little higher, 
learning that the U.S. is actually vaccinating um, the U.S. population actually faster than any member of the European Union, which is really interesting because I think you watch the media or you kind of measure the temperature of a lot of citizens in the U.S., there is some frustration around lost doses and the second dose confusion that happens. But a great article in The Atlantic talked about kind of the idea that, you know, the U.S. is actually vaccinated or has vaccinated almost 16 people for every 100 folks. And you compare that to the U European community, specifically, you know, Germany, France, they're, they vaccinated between four and five people out of 100. So um, there is some good news here in the U.S. around the vaccination. And I think the Trump administration's Operation Warp Speed had a lot of bumps along, along the road. Uh, one thing that they didn't worry about, and this is really interesting, it's kind of indicative on the models of healthcare between the U.S. and Europe, is they really didn't worry about the cost of the vaccine or whether the vaccine company could be held liable for side effects. They got their orders in early. They ordered strongly. And some of the European countries focused on trying to get um, a lower cost price for the vaccine, which is, like I said, indicative of the way they've handled the procurement process in the past. I think what we're seeing right now with these hiccups and kind of that choppiness of, of the vaccine rollout in the United States, a lot of it is being driven too by just the, the laws of supply and demand. There's a ton of demand right now. Many states opened up to really broad swaths of populations. And quite frankly, like the, the vaccine manufacturers are producing as much as they possibly can, but there's still more demand than there is supply. And once that starts to even out, I think what we're going to see is maybe smoother sailing when it comes to how the vaccines get distributed, distributed, how they get rolled out to the community. And it feels like we're getting to that tipping point somewhere in the next couple of months. But patience is definitely wearing thin right now. There are, have been some really interesting, great stories around equity in vaccinations as well. You know, and right in our backyard in Philadelphia, there's a group called the Black Doctors COVID Consortium that just did a free COVID um, a vaccination uh, clinic in North Philadelphia. And in 24 hours, they vaccinated over 4,000 Philadelphians. It's a really great success story. And, um, you know, we talk about supply and demand, and then there's another level of that around the equity and the underserved getting vaccinated. And it was just a great story. Completely. I think it's pretty unsurprising to us all that the vaccine and COVID are dominating conversation from a news perspective, but there has been a lot of chatter recently about 340B and the action going on in the courts. What's happening there? You're absolutely right, Jen. Uh, we've been talking about the 340B drug pricing program for a long time. It's a complex situation and there's been a lot of news in the last several weeks around this. And just to level set ourselves and everyone, the 340B drug pricing program is a federal program that the US started in the early 90s. And it really requires uh, drug manufacturers, life science companies, um, if they want to provide services for the Medicaid population to provide these drugs uh, to eligible healthcare organization and those health systems at a significantly reduced price. The idea was to stretch kind of the the scarcity of the federal resources as far as possible and kind of create some health equity amongst some of this drug. And, you know, at the time, and there was five or six different categories of hospitals that eligible that were eligible children's hospitals, oncology hospitals that were um, sole community hospitals. There was an attempt to reach the rural community and also critical access. And so 
Um, it's gone back and forth because there is, you know, I think to put it mildly, a rub between life sciences, health sector, life sciences sector, and the provider and health system sector around taking advantage of the program versus providing these drugs to underserved communities, um, you know, specifically with oncology drugs, home infusion drugs. You know, as we're seeing the health system and hospital landscape in the United States go from a very inpatient hospital-based world uh, to more of an ambulatory home-based outside of the hospital environment, this is causing a lot more confusion. And so there's been a lot of, of lawsuits and conversations led by the American Hospital Association and other key um, groups around uh, this specific topic. I think what we saw earlier in February is that the American Hospital Association and other major hospital groups, right, they appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia on a ruling that was made that upheld Health and Human Services' decision to actually cut the outpatient drug payments to 340B entities by about 28.5%. That is a big number. And part of the, I think the challenge is, is that these hospitals basically will say that reimbursement, right, including that 28.5%, that's different from what the cost of the drug was, it's higher but it enables these hospitals to provide programs and services and more extension of those programs and services to very underserved populations. I think the challenge is that hospitals see that HHS overstepped their boundaries when it came to, to making that ruling. Now, you know, you talked about how this has been such a, a tension point between pharmaceutical manufacturers and and hospitals, and it's because the 340B program and the Medicaid drug rebate program are two different programs, but linked. And so it makes this program very complex to understand and have transparency into where those reimbursement monies are actually going. Are they going to the right patients? Are they going to the right programs? And so I think, you know, taking it from a life sciences perspective, one of the things that that manufacturers really struggle with is that if they're participating in 340B, they're also participating in Medicaid drug rebate. And so they wanna make sure that they are not double rebating on the same unit of product. And so, you know, what we see between hospitals and, and life sciences manufacturers is almost like a repeating argument. Like, you know, we're paying too much, right? In this, you know, in, in terms of cutting the price of the product and, we don't know what hospitals are actually doing with it. And hospitals are saying, we're doing all these programs and these services that are extensions of what we would typically be doing, but it allows us to serve more people. And I, I think what it speaks to is just the opacity of the, the entire program. I mean, there just needs to be more guardrails around the program, but that's not what this hearing about is about. This hearing is really about, did HHS overstep their, their bounds in being able to cut reimbursement by such a significant chunk. And so that's why they're they're asking the Supreme Court to actually hear um, their appeal because hospitals and the AHA don't believe that HHS had standing to be able to do that. I do think that it's unclear. It's been unclear. And, and I don't think we've been able to prove without a shadow of a doubt on where and when hospitals have been able to quote unquote double dip. 
And I know there's been a lot of talk about that auditing process and it's just really difficult, not just for 340B, but for anything to get any information around that really complex kind of reimbursement and revenue cycle management world that lives within the health system community. So I completely agree. And I think it's getting even more complex as we start to think about pharmacies entering the picture and the you know white bagging that goes on between pharmacies and and hospitals. Um, you know, I think that that adds to just the confusion and specifically on the medical benefit side. So when we're talking about pharmacy benefit, life sciences manufacturers have a way to scrub out the data and be able to separate like a you know a unit of product to say, oh this. This was rebated under the 340B versus the Medicaid program. But I think what, what we're starting to see, right, is more and more products fall out under the Medicare or under the medical benefit. And as a result of that, not a lot of tools exist to be able to really understand like where that product is being covered. And so I think that just adds additional confusion to all of this. So, you know, I expect that we're going to continue to see a lot of back and forth until either Congress steps in and decides that they're going to do something to either tighten the program or add some more language um, to the program, or we see more advancement in tools that life sciences manufacturers can utilize to be able to really kind of isolate when a product is actually covered under 340B. This will definitely be one to watch as this complexity is untangled and we watch the, the courts weigh in here. I'd love to know what other headlines have grabbed your attention recently. So, um, you know, I love to talk about the marketplace and I think back to when the marketplace first started and how choppy the marketplace was and that there was a lot of um, just a lot of uncertainty about whether the marketplace would be able to withstand, you know, the pressures that were put on it. Fast forward to this year. And I think what's interesting is that, you know, Back in 2018, Aetna actually had decided to pull out of the marketplaces. Now, this is a huge national plan, right, that was covering a lot of territory in the United States. And so that was a pretty devastating blow to the marketplaces. Here we are in 2021, and we just saw a recent announcement by CVS Health, who has actually acquired Aetna, that they are planning to re-enter the ACA marketplace next year. And so I think what we're seeing, right, is two things. One is that the marketplaces have really started to stabilize and that insurers and health plans are feeling much more comfortable about entering that, that space. I think the other thing we're seeing, right, is a Biden administration that sets up an environment to really expand eligibility for marketplaces so it becomes an attractive, attractive market to be in. Um, you know, I think we also saw United jump into this recently. So um, it's interesting to me that the nationals are starting to get back in. I think it's a huge benefit to consumers um, that are looking for more choice on the marketplaces is that they will have more choice. Uh, and the other thing I'd say is like, from a, the standpoint of CVS who owns Aetna jumping into this, I think what we're really starting to see is like CVS is becoming, you know, almost like an omnichannel company when it comes to where they're playing and getting into the insurance marketplaces certainly is indicative of that move. Just remember that you mentioned 2018 CVS acquired Aetna. That is the year Aetna dropped out of the marketplace. It took probably two years for that acquisition and partnership to come through. So it is, I don't think any coincidence that we're seeing Aetna re-enter the marketplace. And just to put it in perspective, CVS Health as a whole 
is just an enormous conglomerate now. You know, you mentioned the omni-channel approach. They have something like $260 billion in revenue yearly. They have, you know, well over, you know, closing in on 10,000 stores across the country and something like, you know, we're nearing a thousand health hubs across the country. So there's an enormous network, neural network of healthcare cross-sector opportunities. So the fact that they're, you know, opening themselves up to the ACA marketplace is something we will definitely be watching. Talking about new entrants, there's some interesting news this week about a new company called Truveta. Yeah, Jen, it is interesting. Over, we just saw in the news a new health data startup uh, called Truveta, which was really run by some really large healthcare giants like Tenet Health, Providence Health, amongst many other healthcare systems. Um, surprise, they are this startup is going to be based in Seattle. And the idea is for them to synthesize and then sell or create value behind normalized de-identified data uh, from the group of providers. And, you know, they're, they're doing so with the tenant. And if you look at all the press releases around privacy for patients. So we all know that, you know, data has always been a currency that's been important over the last decade. But we are seeing that as being more of a strong currency than ever. And I will steal Mindy's term, data is gold, is the new gold. And we're seeing things like this announcement, which is health systems and IDNs, trying to grow their eminence in the data space by either starting or acquiring companies to pull patient data together. Uh, this is really uh, you know, an interesting trend that I think we'll see more of. And it puts pressure on some of our other data, large data healthcare technology companies. And it should be interesting to see how the health systems band together on this, because I think what has been a little bit of the issue in the past on this idea of health systems and IDNs forming companies or even um, acquiring companies like this is one, the idea or the risk around patient data and exposing that patient data, uh, which seems to be kind of trending towards the fact that if you're able to put um, barriers around the privacy, you can do this anyway. And then second of all, the past kind of walls that were up between health systems to join forces, because in order for you to have true data, knowing that you need to have a lot of it, how about that for a scientific term, a lot of data, you're going to need to work with other health systems. And in the past, it's not always been the forte of these health systems. And Ryan, you know, it reminds me of this conversation we had on a recent podcast when we were talking about business models and partnership innovations. And I think we're seeing this in this instance, right? Is like partners coming, entities coming together to create a partnership um, and do something that hadn't really been done effectively before. And I think about just the amount of data that these 14 plus entities are bringing with them. I mean, think about it, they cover tons of you know, states and regions and localities. And so that the amount of data that they're going to bring with them to in this combined entity is going to be pretty impressive. The other thing I think is interesting about this, when I think about what COVID exposed, right, in the, the health system space, it was the need for healthcare systems to learn faster. And so rather than having this data sitting in all this siloed, fragmented arena, I mean, the effort that this company is trying to do is kind of bringing data together to enable learning faster, which I think is like really going to be critical, whether there's a pandemic going on or not, is enabling healthcare systems to kind of go at a, a faster pace. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see where this one lands and whether, you know, 14 
really big health systems can bring it all together and all paddle in the same direction to achieve the goal that they set out for this partnership. Yeah, just to put it in perspective for our listeners, I think Providence Health Services has something like 51 hospitals and 800 non-acute facilities in, on the West Coast mostly. So pretty big. <laughs> yeah, I think this just brings together not only a huge amount of patients and practices and health system data, but it solves a really key gap that historically has been in this space around hospital data. And I think that's a gap that will, to Mindy's point, enable us to learn a lot faster, map out patient journeys more effectively, um, and overall learn and improve the standard of care. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.